We, uh, it's been a few weeks. 19th of December is when we began Matthew, uh, using as our overall heading the biography of the king. Now, I've shared with you on many occasions, I believe, my love for biographies. I'm not a big fiction guy. As some of you love to read fiction. You like to go off into an imaginary place and, and uh, imaginary lands and think about those things. Not me. I'm, I'm like a, a realist. I'm a grounded kind of gimme nonfiction. When it comes to movies, I much prefer uh, documentaries to science fiction. It's just the way I am. Not that one or the other is right or wrong. It's just me. I'm a, I'm a non-fiction, real-life guy, and so as a family, we have read over the years, and some of the best time we've spent as a family has been in reading Christian biographies. I made a list of some. Jim Elliott, Corey Tenboom, Gladys Aylward, Amy Carmichael, Brother Andrew, George Mueller. These are books, biographies as a family. We've read about the, life's, uh, the lives of these men and women. And I got to thinking, why do I enjoy that? What, what is it about these biographies? They inspire me. They inspire me. I see what God has done in people's lives who've lived by faith, who've made daring choices, who've made challenging choices, who've gone where many others wouldn't go, uh, who've done things that you know, others maybe thought stupid or crazy. And just to watch how God has blessed and how God has worked, it just inspires me personally to live more daringly for the Lord. So we come to this biography of, of Jesus Christ, the biography of the king, written from Matthew's standpoint, of course, for a, largely a Jewish audience, applies to us anyway, uh, but writing from the standpoint of, here's Jesus, he's not introducing the Jews to a new religion or a new thing, he's showing them that Jesus is the very one that all of their scriptures have been pointing to. Finally, he's here, and the, and the Bible tells us, you know, hope deferred makes the heart sick. Have you ever hoped for something, and it, it's just not happening, it's not happening, and you get kind of bummed out, and you get depressed? Hope deferred makes the heart sick. But when it comes, it's a tree of life. I mean, it's good, and it's fulfilling, and, and that's what the story of Jesus is about. It's about hope deferred, how they had waited for and hoped for their Savior, the Messiah. That, and that just means the anointed one, the one who was chosen by God to deliver them. And they had all kinds of things in their, in their Old Testament scriptures that pointed to this Messiah. And they had been waiting and waiting and waiting. And it had been 400 years since God had spoken anything new to them. And then the silence is broken. Angel, uh, Gabriel, brings the birth announcement. And, and, and here we are in Matthew. The good news of Jesus Christ, the biography of the king. Chapter 2, we'll get into today. We'll, we'll finish chapter 1. And we'll get into chapter 2. Like any good biography, starts with kind of the birth and the early life. You know, you read a biography of, of Corey Ten Boom, and it talks about when she was born, what was the setting, what was the, you know, born into this kind of family, this was the political setting, this was the geographics, and all these things. And we're getting that with Jesus, and now we're going to move into his young life. You know, what was his young life like? Where did he grow up? Was he, did he have a silver spoon in his mouth? Or, or did he grow up hard? You know, what, what was it like? And that's what chapter 2 is all about as we get into that chapter. It's important for us to read this. And we will spend the next year as a family devotional going through this life of Jesus Christ. His works, his words, his deeds, his ministry. We'll see how he treats people. His relationship with God. And again, 
He inspires me. He inspires me. I'm told to follow Him. I'm told to learn of Him, to take His yoke on me and learn of Him. That I can find rest for my soul. That I can learn how to deal with people. What is God's heart for the world? And all of these things. So as we read the biography of the King, I pray in my prayer for this next year, for 2011, is that He would inspire us. That His life would inspire us. And that we would live out His life through our lives. You can't live out something that you don't know or understand. That maybe you've heard about or seen on a Christmas card. So we're going to really see how Jesus lived. We're going to walk with him and we're going to listen to him. And I'm just very excited. So we went through chapter 1, the genealogy, the birth of the king. Uh, I'm going to pick up in verse 18 of chapter 1. And read down, but I won't start. We won't start to actually getting into any explanations till we get into verse 21 and uh, and on from there. So, chapter 18, excuse me, chapter 1, verse 18. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows: After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Let's just stop there for a minute, because this could very well be one of the most important verses in the whole Bible. Uh, Matthew gives us, from Jesus' birth, and actually uh, from very early, uh, from before time, really, the purpose, the mission of his life. What does it say right there? You'll call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. He, had, he wasn't here to amass a fortune and, and you know, make a name for himself and, and become a, a political figure. and those kind of, That's not why he came. And we get we as Christians get confused about why Jesus came, you know. And here we learn clearly it's bound up in his very name. Jesus. Jehovah or God is salvation. And salvation just means to be saved. What it's kind of foreign language to us in some ways. We think about, you know, we talk about, well, you know, are you saved? Have you been saved? When did you get saved? And, you know, we're so used to saying it, I'm not sure we think about what it means. So to prepare my mind for this morning, looked up the definition, save, to rescue from danger or destruction. And because you guys know I'm like Olympic level swimmer caliber, or not, I always think of water. And we've had enough flood stories over uh, in the news and in various places to think about in our minds. So I want you to go with me to the news, and I want you to think about the last time you saw video footage of a rescue, of a, of a flood rescue, of a, you know, when, when there was some drastic weather and someone got stranded there, the, the river rose and uh, the houses were being covered and cars were being washed downstream and there's a guy like me or you uh, clinging to a tree in the middle of this flood and the rescue workers, you know, there's helicopters sometimes, the rescue workers are trying to get in position to rescue this person. So I want you to have that 
picture. I watched a video just this morning, again, just to prepare my mind about what it means to be saved. I watched one of, uh, one of these rescues in uh, the drainage, the concrete drainage tunnels, uh, maybe in California, where the water is just flooding down this concrete basin. And there's rescue workers on one side and rescue workers on this side. And there's this young man, probably in his early 20s, maybe late teens, strong kid. And he is stuck in this water that is moving so fast that if he lets go of the ropes they've put across, I mean, he's going down with the flood. And so he's clinging on, and the teams are just desperately trying to reach him, and, and a group is anchored on the shore, and then they're you know, letting this one guy out, and he's got a rope around him, and he's trying to reach the young boy, and, and they try to make one attempt, and the hand slips, and he, and he falls back in the water, and it's just, I was on the edge of my seat. And that's the picture I want you to have in your mind. They did rescue him, and everybody cheered, and it was great, a celebration. So with that picture in your mind, I want to talk to you about what this verse means. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. We are flooded by messages of right and wrong. Flooded by messages from friends, from television, about what's enjoyable, what's pleasant, what we should and shouldn't do with our lives. Uh, commercials will tell you what to do, and advertisements and all these things. I want to read you a little passage that, that kind of puts this in the context for me. This is from uh, 1 Peter chapter 4. Try to listen closely. I'll bring your attention to what uh, is the main point here. Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind. For he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh, meaning in this body, for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. For we have spent, speaking directly to you and I, we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles, or, or the, the people that uh, live for idols and, and don't know God. When we walked in lewdness, lusts, you know, passions, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. Now listen, in regard to these, those things he just mentioned, they, the people that do them, think it's strange that you, those that have become Christians, do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation. The flood, literally, of an abandoned life, speaking evil of you. So, so here's what happens. You and I get saved, and we had all those buddies from the party days, you know, from the college days. And, and when we get saved, our lives change. And they begin to look at us and go, hey, you want to come out drinking? You know, we're going, to the, we're going to the bar. You want to come? We're going to a party. And you go, yeah, I'm not really into that anymore. And, and the flood, the, the, the faucet turns on, the flood begins to come, you know. And, and they wonder why you don't want to jump into the water with them and ride downstream in the flood of an abandoned life, a life that's abandoned from any anchor. But I like the terminology of that same flood of dissipation, that same flood that that boy is stuck in clinging on, a flood that leads to just an abandoned life. So we're here, and we read about, in the video, I saw a team of rescuers. In this passage, I see one. He. It doesn't take a team of men or a team of gods to rescue you from your sin. Just one man. You see, by one man, sin came into the world. What was his name? Adam. One man is responsible. We'll have him to thank. Now, we would have done the same thing if we were there, right? But by one man, sin came into the world. And by one man, and the grace of that one man, 
we can be justified. We can be made right with God again. So we don't see a team. We see one man. It was one man that hurled us in, one man to fish us out. And his name is Jesus Christ. The only name. Uh, this man, he's not a life coach or an inspirational speaker. I mean, imagine, just imagine, there you are in the flood, and you're clinging on to some tree, or you're hanging on to some rope, and all the rescuers are standing on the sidelines, ex- lecturing you about how to be saved. Lecturing you about, okay, now put your, take your right hand, and put it on toward you know, that tree over there, grab that limb, you know, you put your left foot in, you take your left foot out, you know. And you're going, you're, you're trying for the first five minutes, maybe, you fight and you try to follow their instructions, but then what happens? You get tired. You begin to wear out. And that's what this young man in the video, he's just exhausted. And he got to the point that the Bible tells us that we are at when we were without strength. That's when Christ died for us. When we, were, when we got to that point when we quit fighting. When we could no longer fight it, no longer try in our own strength to do it, that's when Christ stepped in and helped us out and saved us. So he's not a life coach or an inspirational speaker, and we get confused about that. We think, I'm going to go to church, I'm going to get my act cleaned up, and once I get my marriage rescued, then, then I'll be okay, I can, I can do it without then. And back in the water we go. He is a savior. He is the Savior. Now, again, what was the issue? The issue wasn't going to rescue people from the economy. Going to rescue people from the political administration. The issue for mankind has been, is, and will be sin. Now, we hear that word again a lot, and I'm trying to be really basic because I don't want to miss this. I don't want you to miss this. You can't walk out of here confused about sin. Sin is, is the opposite of love. Sin is when we do, if all the law of God is summed up in one word, what's that one word? Love. The whole law of God, all the commandments, if there's any commandments even that we don't know of, which we know them all, but if there was something else, all of God's law is summed up in one word, love. All of sin is summed up in another word, selfishness. Unconditional love, loving others, is God's law. Loving God, loving others. Sin is loving ourselves. Loving ourselves. Serving ourselves. We become the king. We become the focus. That's idolatry. That's, we make ourselves God. So when we need to be rescued from sin, doing things that are unloving. Look through the commandments, you know. Adult, thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not bear false witness. All those things have to do with, if I love my neighbor, I don't, take, I don't steal from him or her. If I love my neighbor, I don't take what they have. I don't put them down. I don't hurt them. But we live in a world filled with people serving themselves and their needs and will do whatever it takes to get our own happiness or our own prosperity or our own advantage. And the world is filled with sin. My life, my life, I was in that flood of selfishness. I had stuff that looked good about my life, you know. I was doing well in school and had some friends. And, 
But at the core of my life was this issue of sin. And I was helpless to rescue myself from it. And I talked to countless people that will recognize the same thing about their own lives. That there's this part of my life that I don't want to talk about, that I don't want to discuss, I want to pretend it's not there. But it's rooted in this area where I know I'm wrong, I know I'm doing wrong, I know I'm living wrong, I know I'm thinking wrong. And I need to be rescued from it. Not from Rome, what, what they might have said. Well, rescue us from Rome. Rome is, is in charge of Israel at this point. And maybe that's what we... No, you need rescue from sin. And so, again, back to our flood example. Not just a desire to be saved, but the willingness to not resist the one who came to save you. A willingness to not resist the one who that comes to save. The emergency rescue workers show up. And there you are. The flood is coming. You say, get out. I'm okay. I'll get it eventually. I'll get my way out of this. I don't know how. But I'll figure a way out. And there they stand on the shore. You know, just kind of, uh, you know, how long is this going to go before finally he lets us rescue him? So you, you struggle. You fight. You finally wear out. And, and, you know, there you are just clinging on. And finally, when you get so tired, you say, yeah, please rescue me. And by that point, you can't even help the, the process, can you? You can't even, like, you're just so tired, you can't even lift your arms up, so the rescuers have to belt you around the waist and harness you in and put you on their back and drag you to safety. They do it all. And you're just, your, your only job is to not resist. And that's the story, that's the Christmas story. That's Jesus coming. They, he wraps the, the rope of grace around your waist. And pulls you to safety. And you know what? Our rescuer has never lost one. Not one has gone on downstream going, Oh man, I almost had him. Not one that has said, Rescue me, has ever been lost. Now, I want to give you one more example. I know I'm spending a lot of time on this and we will move through. But again, this is so central to who we are and how we understand ourselves and our church, and, and life, and the world, and people, that I want to make sure we don't miss this. Because sometimes we say, well, Jesus came to save his people. I'm glad I'm not one of those people that needs to be saved. You know, Jesus came to save those people, but I'm doing pretty good. You know, I, I don't really need a Savior. I don't need a crutch. You're right, we don't need a crutch. We need the ambulance, the rescue squad team, the gurney. We need it all. Not just, Jesus is not just a crutch. He's the whole rescue operation. And, we, well, I don't need that. Those people need to be saved, but not me. Again, I go back to swimming. It's just my example. So, any good swimmers in here? What's some? Okay, some afraid to, some, any humble swimmers in here that don't want to say, yeah, I'm a good swimmer, but I'm not going to admit it because I'm humble and everybody's watching me and I don't want to seem like I'm cocky. You know, all right, you can say, if you're a decent swimmer, uh, you know, maybe you, you guys know me, I'm like lousy swimmer man. So, me and you, good swimmer person, and then what's the name of the guy that won all the, the medals at the Olympics? Michael Phelps. Me and you and Michael Phelps, we're going to line up at the Jersey Shore, just because that's near where I'm from, from Philadelphia. So, we're going to line up Ocean City, New Jersey, and we are going to begin to swim to England. All right? Hey, no, you're a good swimmer, right? You just said you're a good swimmer. So, we're, we jump and we run out, you know, we're excited, we're, we're going to make it to England, and and man, I make it maybe 100 yards out, if that. And I'm calling for the lifeguard. Come and help me. 
You know, I'd make it 100 yards and I begin to flounder and I need help. But you, you're a good swimmer. How far can you make it, you think? Can you make it a mile? Two miles? How many thousand miles is it to England? Uh, just checking. So you, maybe you make it to, we'll give you the benefit of the doubt. You had your Starbucks and you're doing, you're feeling good. You've been exercising. You've been working out, hitting the gym. You make it three miles. But then there's next to you, come zipping past you, is Michael Phelps. And he's got, he's got his eight medals on, so he's moving a little slower. How far does Michael Phelps make it? Best swimmer of our day. How far does he make it? Let's say he makes it 20 miles. Let's, give, let's say he's having a really good day. He makes it 50 miles before he tires out. 100 miles before he tires out and needs help. You see, we get this picture like somehow because I made it 100, or you made it 100 miles, or Michael Phelps made it 100 miles, but I only make it 100 yards, that somehow you need less rescuing than me. But you don't, do you? The point is, when Michael Phelps hits 100 miles, he needs rescuing. He's not making it to England. England, for us in the analogy, represents perfection. Making it all the way. No messing up. No mistakes. No sin, even unintentional sin. Didn't, the word didn't slip out, you know, just one day and, oops, you know, hit your thumb and, blah, 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 you know, out it came. That doesn't count. Yes, it does. Do you see the point I'm making? You can't look at this passage and think, that's for somebody else. If there was one person who could have swam to England, who could have lived the perfect life before God, then Jesus wouldn't have had to come. But the Bible says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. doesn't matter if you made it 100 yards like me or 100 miles like my Michael Phelps. The point is, you didn't make it all the way, and you need to be rescued. Right? Okay. So, verse 22 says, boy, that's 30 minutes on one verse. That's a record. So all this was done that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, this is from Isaiah chapter 7, Behold the virgin, which is a word in the Old Testament that speaks of a woman uh, from the time she's a, a, basically puberty till she has her first child. The word that's used here, Alma, it's a woman before, from puberty to the time when she has her first child. So she's not had any children yet. This, this, it's really truly a virgin, not just a young girl who maybe uh, has some kids. It's, a, it's literally a virgin who, before she's had her first child, a virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Now, I gave you some homework, 2 Kings chapter 16 and Isaiah chapter 7. Some of you may have looked at those. Most of you probably didn't. The point is there was a man, a king in Judah, named Ahaz, and Ahaz was being flooded by other countries that were attacking, by Israel in the north and, uh, and Syria. They were attacking. And instead of, there was God telling Ahaz, hey, reach your hand out to me, I can rescue you. Instead, Ahaz reached his hand out to another man, the king of Assyria, to come and rescue him. And God tried to tell him, look, I'm with you. I'm going to help you. You don't have to worry. I'm going to bring this thing to nothing, this attack on, on your, your city. But Ahaz chose to trust in man 
this man from Assyria instead of God. And that's why Isaiah said, I want to give you a sign to show you that I am with you. So Christmas time, Jesus is that sign from God to remind us that he is still with us. I, that he's the one with his hand out. And he's the only one that can rescue us because he's the only one that's anchored on solid ground. You can't put your hand out for rescue and someone else that's right with you in the flood. So this prophecy, Matthew says, is fulfilled. What was said long ago is now coming true. It's coming to pass. This is the one that is spoken of by Isaiah. Then, verse 24, Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took to him his wife and did not know her in terms of uh, sexually or intimately, did not know her till she had brought forth her firstborn son and he called his name Jesus. Chapter 2 uh, begins with now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. So uh, it begins now after Jesus was born. So some time has passed. Again, chapter 2, nine times, young child, young child. That's how we're seeing Jesus now. Not as a baby in the manger anymore. I mean, unless she was putting him in his crib uh, till he was about a year and a half old. Unless he just hung out in the crib all the time. You know, he's older than that now. We picture the wise men. How many do we picture? We picture three, right? Because there were three gifts, gold, frankincense, myrrh. But nowhere does the Bible say there were three. There could have been a hundred. There could have been fifty. It just says wise men. So we're just un unraveling some Christmas cards. You know, you're never going to look at Christmas. I'm ruining your Christmas. Just, you know, you can thank me later. Because we also picture the wise men and all the animals where next to the manger with a little tiny newborn baby. Not how it happened. Some time has passed. They come. We have the uh, the point in history. Matthew gives us a historical marker in the days of King Herod. King Herod. So. Christianity is not mythology. We're not following cunningly devised fables or stories. You know, dear children, once upon a time there was a man named Jesus. No, this is the reality of history. It was in the real days of a political reign of a guy named Herod the Great who ruled in, the Jerus in Jerusalem and in Israel. And it was in those days that the wise men came. Now, let's just talk about Herod for a second here because he's going to be an important figure. Herod the Great was was ruling over those the area where Jesus was born. Politically, he had a good relationship with Caesar Augustus, who was the, the ruler of Rome. So he was sort of a, had an allegiance with the Romans and supported their uh, politics and supported their government and all that. How many of you have heard uh, of Cleopatra and Mark Antony? Just raise your hand if you've heard those historically. That's the time we're in. They were contemporaries of Herod. Matter of fact, they battled it out a little bit for control. Uh, Cleopatra wanted to bring some control back to Egypt. and Anyway, so that's the time historically that we're in. Cleopatra, Mark Antony, Herod the Great. Just to set you uh, in history. Herod did a lot of building. If you go to, to the Middle East today, you can see a lot that was built by Herod. It's A lot of it's in ruins now, including the, is, the uh, temple of the Jews. It's called Herod's Temple. In the time of Jesus, that beautiful temple. 
masterful, uh, was built by Herod. Because he wanted to be, he's a politician. He wanted to be on their good side. He wanted to kind of have this relationship with him. But he did some other things that made them upset. He built uh, temples to the, the Caesars to honor them, which the Jews didn't like. So he kind of was trying to play both sides and, and made everybody mad in the process. But he built a lot, not just to impress people and win friends, but to build his own reputation. So he was on the day, it was the days of King Herod. The day, and, and it's becoming quickly the days of Jesus Christ, and he just doesn't realize that yet. He's going to try to make sure it stays the days of King Herod. But it's the days of Jesus Christ in this land at this point. A new day is dawning. By the way, just a curiosity kind of thing. Western wall, the wall that still stands there at the temple in Jerusalem on the Temple Mount, built with huge stones. And because they were so big, they didn't need mortar. They were dry fit. One of the biggest stones that you can see in the Western wall is 40 feet long, 10 feet high, 13 feet thick. One stone. Weighs 400 tons. And these were the huge stones that were laid in the wall that was built. Herod built uh, all kind, an amphitheater that was 290 feet by 190 feet. So, you know, just trying to give you a sense of the kind of person Herod was building and impressing and making everything big. He was a big deal. But there's a bigger king that was born. So these wise men come. Now, who were they? Who were the wise men? I mean, do we picture, you know, guys with books and and encyclopedias in their hands and glasses and their their these guys the, the literal word or the, the Greek word is magi or magus not maggots magus m a g u s and they were the astrologers the uh, scientists of their day most people trace them back to Babylon ancient Babylon the time when Daniel was in captivity in Babylon, and Daniel interpreted the dreams, and there were all the magi. They served kings. They sought direction from the stars. Now, I'm going to read you something again to help you get a better understanding. This is an article called Insights into Ancient Babylonian Astronomy. Now, where's Babylon today? It's Iraq. It's Babylon is in Iraq. It's in the Middle East. It was there then too, just so you know. Uh, we didn't move it, but just so you, you make the, the historical equation. Same place. The ancient Babylonians were highly advanced in astronomy and made many contributions to the field that are in use in the, to the present day. And why I want to read this to you is because how often do you guys look out and just marvel at the sky? How often do you look out and actually can see the sky for all the lights that are on? But when's the last time you just pulled out a blanket you know, 8, 10, 12 o'clock at night, midnight, just, and just laid out and watched the stars. Just look to see, can you find the Big Dipper? Can you find the Little Dipper? Can you find Orion? Can you find the planets that are visible? Can you find the North Star? Let's start there. I'm not great at that. I don't spend a lot of time doing that. I should spend more because it reveals the glory of God. They did. They did. And that's why, because when they say, when we read, they saw the star, it wasn't just, oh look, a star. You know, it was like thousands of them in the sky. And they just didn't have to go, oh, by the way, wow, did you notice that? They spent their lives studying, not just them, but they inherited a history of studying the sky, looking for guidance from the gods, looking for messages in the stars. So, 
Some 2,500 years ago, the ancient Babylonians constructed mud brick towers that rose up to the night sky. We call them ziggurats. And it was a big square with a little square on top of that, a little square on top of that. And you remember in Genesis, they said, hey, let's get together and we'll build a tower unto the heavens. Now, they didn't think they were going to build a tower that would like be tall enough to reach the heavens. That was their tower at the top of which they would worship the stars. And they would worship the gods. And they would seek to understand what the stars, how the stars worked. And that was what the ziggurats were for. So they built these ziggurats in, uh, in present-day Iraq. You can, they, they have them. That's where they built them. Um, scribes that may have used the towers gathered unrivaled knowledge of the heavens. However, the Babylonians contributed more than just building towers to the world of ancient astronomy. In ancient times, tablets were often kept by cultures to record important dates, traditions, a historical account of their culture, and astronomical events that occurred. The ancient Babylonian tablets spoke of a tale that recounted many astronomical events. The first breakthrough in deciphering the ancient scripts came as a result of the ro- deciphering the Rosetta Stone, which had been discovered by French soldiers during a campaign in 1799. Uh, one of the scripts was in Greek, and, and so they were able to decipher the stone. The ancient Babylonian tablets that were recovered were also being deciphered by scre- priests and scholars and, and, and so on. What was revealed from the deciphering of the tablets was absolutely astonishing. The present-day arrangement of the calendar into its present pattern of weeks and months is in part attributed to ancient Babylonian scribes. The Babylonian scribes had predicted the motion of the moon with mathematical precision. Scholars were able to identify the names of the major planets on the tablets, thus paving the way for future discoveries. Western astrology can also be directly linked to the Babylonians. The 12 signs of the zodiac used today are essentially the same ones developed by the ancient Babylonians 2,500 years ago. Eclipses were predicted with accuracy. They practiced sophisticated arithmetic. And and on and on it goes. Even before Pythagoras and the Pythagorean theorem, they understood those mathematical principles. So there's more I could read, but I just wanted to give you a basic understanding that when these magi or these stargazers, these kingly advisors, when they see a star in the east, it's because they know the sky really well. And they don't just see a star, do they? They see his star. It's his star. Now, we don't exactly know what happened. You can watch the video called The Star of Bethlehem. There's some suggestions in that video about how, uh, what may have happened in the sky at that time, what it was that they saw. How did they know what to look for? Did they learn about the God of Israel from Daniel? And did Daniel begin this school of understanding from the God of Israel that then would continue on up to the time of Jesus? We, we don't know for sure. But whatever it was that they saw, they knew a couple of things. Number one, it made them leave where they were to travel 700 miles to Israel, to Jerusalem. Now that's just not, hey, that's a nice star, you know, let's go to Jerusalem. It was like, that star means something that we know. It meant that that Israel had a king that was born. So somehow they made the link between that star and the birth of a king in Israel. So they come and they say, where is he? Where is the king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east. They were in the east. They saw, they saw his star. And we have come to worship him. We have come to, not to study him. Not to learn about him. Not to question him. Like some of you might come. 
They came to do what? They came to worship him. They came to worship him. Why did you come here this morning? Did you come to study him? To to investigate him? I've heard about this Christ, and I've heard about those people that meet in a school, and I don't know how they can be a church without stained glass, and, you know, I'm going to investigate this. I'm going to check it out, see if this is really true. They probably didn't have a whole lot of knowledge, did they? They probably didn't know. They they certainly didn't have the amount of light that we have. And yet it was enough, they knew enough, that whoever this king was, he was to be worshipped. He was to be worshipped above other kings. So Herod the king, it's interesting, we see two kings developing here. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. A little bit more information on Herod. He was very paranoid about his power. You know, and now all of a sudden we read about when Herod the king heard these magi coming and say, hey, where's the king? He's going, hey, I'm right here. Don't you see me? So, you know, as a king, especially in those days, you had to really worry about who was trying to take your throne over. And it could be your children. It could be, you know, your highest advisors. And you, Herod had that paranoia that comes with trying to grasp power. Have you ever been in that place where you're trying to grasp even power at your workplace? Or maybe power in your family? And you're paranoid that the other person is always trying to undermine you? And this this paranoia developed. The first person Herod killed was a priest that he was threatened by. A guy that was going to be the high priest and and he got very popular. And then it, it started a trend for him. Then he killed, he would go on to kill his wife, Mariamne, and her mother. No mother-in-law jokes there. He killed her two sons, his own firstborn, many of his loyal servants and officers, and 300 soldiers that he suspected of serving someone else or being loyal to somebody else. Just wiped them out. So when we read about Herod, and now he's hearing there's another king in Israel, king of the Jews, we understand why he does what he does because of who he was, because of what he's done in the past. So he, he hears what's going on, and he's feeling a little intimidated. When he heard this, he was troubled. And when he is troubled, when mama's not happy, ain't nobody happy. When the king ain't happy, nobody's happy. So everybody was troubled. And so he gathers, verse 4, all the chief priests and the scribe. Those were the religious people. He gathers them together, and he begins to inquire of them where the Christ was to be born. He didn't even know. The, the, the Jewish people didn't even know. In the east, the Babylonians had seen the star and responded. And, and yet his own people, were, were, maybe they'd given up hope. That, he, that, the Messiah, that for Hope for help, hope for rescue. So they said, where is he supposed to be born? Where, you know, we figured Jerusalem. Verse 5 says, so they said to him, these scribes and, and priests, he's going to be born in Bethlehem, the, literally the house of bread. In Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, but you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. That was in Micah. It was already told where it was going to happen. You know, God knows the end from the beginning. You know, the, the Bible tells me that even of my life, there's not a day that is lived that's not written already in a book. All the days have been written in a book for me before yet even one of them has lived. And so here we see the sovereignty of God behind all of humanity, behind all the world. 
knowing exactly and orchestrating exactly what he said. If God said it, you can trust it. So he said, the Savior's going to come out of Bethlehem, and that's exactly where he came out of. That's exactly where he was born. And he's going to be a shepherd to my people. Just, let's go a little bit farther. Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star had appeared. You see, the star appeared at the time of his birth. Then they had to, uh, it was nine months till he was born, and that the Magi, the wise men, had to make the travel, the trek. They didn't hop on, you know, U.S. Air and fly into Jerusalem, you know, pick, get to the airport and begin to find where, where this king is. They had to, you know, load up the camels and load up the supplies for the 700-mile trek. So time has passed. So he says, all right, when did you see the star? Why does Herod want to know that? Because he's got to figure out how old this kid is now. Because he's got to make sure he has all his bases covered. How old is he now? About a year, year and a half, somewhere in that range. When did the star appear? So he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the young child. And when you have found him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. What do you call that? That's a lie. That's a lie. Herod didn't want to worship him. He wanted to kill him. When they heard the king, they departed, and behold, the star which they had seen in the east, when they were in the east, went before them. So the star led them from east to west, but now they're in Jerusalem, and the star is leading them to Bethlehem, which is south. I don't know how that, I don't know what it was, but somehow, read on. When they heard the king, they departed. Behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. Now, you go outside your house. I can't figure which one of our houses you know, those stars are over. It's like over all the houses. So there are some that try to understand and explain this merely in terms of astronomical events. I think it's very hard to determine what house a star is standing over unless it's like, right over it. Could it be that this was the glory of God? You know, I don't know what it was, but it directed them supernaturally to where Jesus was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. You know, that's just not any star. It's not just any event for them to have exceedingly great joy. Wouldn't it be great if the church saw the star, Jesus, he, I mean, he's the star of the show, and just got exceedingly joyful? When's the last time you experienced exceeding joy in your life? When's the last time you just thought about God, thought about Christ saving you from your sins, rescuing you out of that flood, and said, man, I am just so thankful for that. I'm just so filled with great joy. Not often enough. A couple more verses. When they had come into the house, they saw the who? Not the baby. The young child. They saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And, and that's the last verse we'll look at. We'll pick up there next week. Um, and again, I apologize for taking such a long time this morning in that one verse, but I hope you understand how important that verse was. But, but don't check out just yet, because I want to talk about one more thing. When they came, they saw the, the young child, they fell down and they worshipped him. 
we have a, a concept of worship. You know, where was, did they bring with them their praise team? Did they say, all right, strike up the band, it's time to worship? They knelt down before him. They humbled themselves before the king. He was just a toddler, a one-year-old, a two-year-old at best. But they knew who he was, and they worshipped him. And part of their worship to him was they opened up their treasures to him. And worship, you know, we've gotten convinced that somehow worship involves, you know, we say, well, I'm going to, to you know, to, it's time to worship. It's always time to worship. It's always time to humble yourself before the king. It's always time to open up your treasure. What is it that you treasure? What is it that you treasure? Because the Bible tells me and you, where your treasure is, that's where your heart's going to be. So in giving them their treasure, it's almost like these wise men gave them their hearts. We're not from around here, but we know who you are, and we're giving you things that are valuable to us. Where your treasure is, that's where your heart's going to be. And they gave him myrrh, myrrh. Unless it's crushed, it doesn't release its fragrance. Unless it's crushed, it, when it's crushed, it releases a fragrance. And so they give that to Jesus, the one who will be crushed for our sins. And they give him gold and frankincense. What is it for you? What is it that God is saying, you know, you need to turn that over to me in worship? You need to just present that to me in worship. Just out of love. And I just think of Mary who, who pours out that costly oil to Jesus on his feet. Just worshiping him. We come in here. It's how many of you know that it's so easy to sing, you know, uh, you know how mighty God is. You know, He's mighty to save, mighty to save. It's so e anybody can say that. Anybody can do that. You don't even have to believe it to sing it, right? I mean, do you know what I'm talking about? You don't even have to believe it to sing it. But show me a person who's willing to travel 700 miles and bow down and open up their treasures to the Lord, the treasures of your heart. The treasures of your soul. And open them up to the Lord. I'll show you a person who understands worship. Job understood worship. He said, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And he worshiped God. This is part of worship, folks. And Lord knows I want Calvary Chapel Fluvanna to be a group of worshipers. The Lord is seeking those that will worship him, isn't he? Not just those that will sing for him or sing to him but those that will worship Him. And so my question this morning is, if you've seen yourself coming out of that flood, being rescued, not by your own power, but by the grace of God, that person that's rescued, once they get their strength back, what do they do? I mean, they just thank you so much for rescuing me. So grateful to the rescuers. I just pray that uh, we are grateful. Grateful enough to worship the one and the only one who is able to rescue us out of the flood. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, uh, I just sense a, a consideration this morning, Lord, in the hearts of, of those that are here, a, um, 
a coming to grips with the reality of what your word says about our lives. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The fact that even maybe some are taking offense to uh, recognizing that they are classified in that sinner category, Lord. Classified as one that needs rescue. And I pray that offense, that uh, false identity we've wrapped ourselves in of goodness, is just undone as we look at the cross. That we just become worshipers this morning. That we present our bodies a living sacrifice. being transformed by the renewing of our mind, not conformed to the image of the world. Lord, we thank you that you didn't come to condemn sinners, but that the world through you might be saved. I pray every individual heart this morning is personalizing that, is thinking about that at an individual level. Lord, we just ask that you do a, a reviving work among us, Lord, beginning with the confession of of sin and a turning away that we would kneel down with the wise men in worship. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's just sit right where you are. Just stay for just two more minutes. And let's just spend time worshiping the Lord. Just in your heart, recommitting whatever needs to be recommitted giving gratitude where gratitude needs to be given. Just letting your mind worship Him. Letting your heart think of Him.